Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure, on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 251 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a great conversation with guest Maureen Maher Gray. She's a teacher, a community activist, and founder of the Northeastern Pennsylvania Youth Shelter. We talk to Maureen about how she ended up migrating from the Pacific Northwest to the eastern part of our great country, what prompted her to believe a youth shelter was needed here in our neck of the woods, and how she got it started, who it serves, what are some of the issues and crises those young people it serves face, and why they appreciate the shelter so much, among other things. A great conversation today with Maureen Meher Gray on the program. We also have an EWSA by yours truly titled Freak. We have another installment of Uncle Cesare, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis. He shares with us an essay titled A Christmas Memory that he crafted specifically, specially for us in this episode. We also have a poem titled Sentimental Journey. And as is always the case, we encapsulate, ensconce, imbue with a sweet energy all of this with several great tunes. It's nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 251 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thank you. 
to help me, you know. He put me at ease and he loved me so naughty, made me weak in the knees. Oh, I wish I had a river I could skate away on. I'm so hard to handle. I'm selfish and I'm sad. Now I've gone and lost the best baby that I ever had. Oh, I wish I had a river I could skate away on. I wish I had a river so long I would teach my feet to. You better not cry, you better not pout, you better not question or protest too loud, because the patriarchy rules our town. They are making a list, taking names down, working to turn all of our frowns around. The patriarchy rules our town. Some child called me a freak as I was walking up my street, maybe because of my bandana and colorful socks, though it could have been because of the tear in the shoulder of my wintertime smock. The intolerance is taught at a young age by the patriarchy in our town. Nonetheless, the only sort of redress that is healthy is not necessarily to scoff back at the wealthy and wannabes, but instead to speak truth to power from day to day and hour to hour. Let justice prevail and love, kindness, courage, and wisdom flower. Freaks Full-bodied happiness can devour empty, dour, cynical, negative power. Let's hope the patriarchy doesn't always rule our town. 
or instead more, hey kids, just turn that frown upside down.
Hello, this is Maureen Maher Gray. Hello, Maureen. This is E.W. Yes. Conundrum from Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thanks for being How on the program. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get started with our conversation, uh, I'd like to share with some of the folks a little background, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. Maureen is a teacher. She's a community activist and the founder of the Northeastern Pennsylvania Youth Shelter, she has come to northeastern Pennsylvania via the desert southwest of Arizona, where she was raised, and Spokane, Washington, where she lived for 28 years. She has a Bachelor's of Arts and a Master's of Arts from Gonzaga University and a teaching certificate from Eastern Washington University. She worked for two years for Equality Pennsylvania, an organization dedicated to equality under state law for LGBTQ citizens. It was in this role that she initially learned that there were little to no resources for teens who were displaced from their homes and families. This inspired her to begin the Northeast Pennsylvania Youth Shelter in 2016. It's so nice to have you on the program, Maureen. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, let's get started. It's an opportunity for us, too, to hear about some great work, so... Let's get started with uh, a little backstory, I guess, if you want to expound on what I shared already. Uh, certainly. Um, I moved to Pennsylvania in 2009 and uh, looked around for things to do um, and uh, couldn't really put my finger on anything specific um, for a little while. And then I did start to get involved in local uh, politics and issues. And I was hired by Equality Pennsylvania in uh, January 2014. And my job, essentially, was to travel to um, 15 counties in uh, eastern Pennsylvania and talk about the fact that LGBTQ people were not protected under state law in the areas of housing, employment, and public accommodation. So I went to every festival, every uh, event, public event that I could, uh, First Fridays, uh, the garlic festival, the bacon festival, um, all kinds of all kinds of things. That was my job for for uh, for two years. And every festival that I went to, I put my sign up, and teenagers would start coming over and talking about how they would never tell their parents that they were gay because they would get kicked out and they had no place to go. 
And the first couple of times I heard it, I thought, okay, you know, these are teenagers, a little overdramatic. But then I heard it in Reading, and then I heard it in Tawanda, and then I heard it in Honesdale, and Scranton, and Wilkes-Barre, and East Stroudsburg. And I thought, that's just too, can't be a coincidence. This has to be an issue. And my uh, job with Equality Pennsylvania was only for two years. So the last six months um, of my my position, I started looking into what are the options for LGBT kids particularly and discovered that, in fact, there's nothing. There's, huh. not, even, there's nothing even for straight kids. And so um, we expanded, or I expanded my uh, vision to uh, beyond just LGBT kids and um, decided that or dis- discovered that Teens in in our area, in our region, are in crisis, and there's no place for them really to go for safety um, in in the immediate uh, aftermath of whatever their circumstances. So um, in August, uh, I did in January 2016 have information meetings, and I talked to every nonprofit and social agency I could contact and ask them, you know, is this the case, and if so, what what's being done about it, and Nearly everybody said, yes, this is a problem. This is a problem, and it is particularly a problem for LGBT kids. Um, But no one was missioned to take care of these kids. And so my second question to them was, all right, well, if I start this, are you going to support me? And they all pretty much said, yes, they would. And by August of 2016, I had a board. We incorporated as a 501c3 nonprofit with the IRS and uh, kind of started growing from there. Um, Our initial thought was uh, we knew if we opened a shelter immediately that we would would not be successful because we didn't have any real connections with the teen community. So we were thinking about a way to um, how do we get to, how do we get ourselves known to teens here in the area and then will those teens then tell their friends who are in crisis about us? So that's how we came up with the idea of the after-school teen drop-in center. Uh, Our next challenge was, of course, finding a location, uh, and I spent (laughs) weeks driving around between Scranton High and West Scranton High looking at abandoned buildings and warehouses and things for rent and for sale and knowing that we would have a very limited budget. Um, I coincidentally uh, took a class at the University of Scranton in uh, nonprofit leadership and met uh, several um, people from different nonprofits in our area, and one of them happened to be the executive director of Meals on Wheels. And she invited me down uh, to her office to have lunch. That's what they do. They serve meals. And we were talking, and I said, you know, this is what I want to do. And I said, I'm just driving myself crazy looking for a location. And she literally stopped with her fork in the air, (laughs) pulled her glasses down, and said, I have an entire second floor that's vacant. Excellent. And that's, as they say, how history is. I am, we came upstairs. The minute I got off the elevator, my mind started going. Um, and when I looked at the space uh, that we, we've gotten, um, it's, it's, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't have pictured it any better. It's exactly what I wanted. We have several small rooms. Uh, we have a couple of larger spaces, but not not so cavernous or large that kids don't feel comfortable and cozy. And we literally transformed this place. We we uh, our agreement with Meals on Wheels started June 1st. 
We spent the entire summer repainting, ripping out old carpet. Um, it, we didn't do anything structural, but um, and then taking, you know, g- gathering donations and bringing in all the supplies that people had donated to us. And I'm very, very proud of the space that we have now. Um, we have a nap room where kids. Um, who are tired can come and just take either a 20-minute nap or I've seen kids in there for sleeping for three hours. Um, we have two rooms dedicated to a clothing exchange, so any student who comes in here or any teenager who comes in here can go into those two rooms and take up to five items that they need or want um, at any any uh, one visit. Um, and that includes, we have a real emphasis on school uniforms because uh, in my discernment with uh, public officials and such, I learned that a lot of kids get called up on truancy because their family only has one school uniform, and the kids take turns wearing it to go to school. Wow. And so if you have three, four kids, that means those kids are only going to school every third or fourth day. And um, so they get called up on truancy because they're not in school. So we have uniforms, and we've had some very generous donations uh, in that regard. So, um, And I can tell you the first time that our, our kids here discovered the clothing exchange, they're like, well, how much does this cost? And I said, well, nothing. It's free. And they're like, this is free. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> we can have something from here. I said, well, you can have five things from here right now. Next week, if you need five more things, you can come back. And And they were just stunned. They just couldn't believe it. And one young man had one pair of pants, and he had gotten a stain on it in one of his classes. And so he was wearing the same pair of pants every day and was sort of becoming the object of ridicule for wearing these stained pants. Well, he happened to find a pair of pants that were brand new. The tags were still on them in his size. And he was he was on the verge of tears. I mean, I can't, I can't describe to you a 17-year-old boy on the verge of tears um, because now he didn't have to, he could hold his head up and wear these, these brand new pairs of pants. Um, I had one young girl, uh, she took a pair of gloves for herself and she asked if she could have a pair of gloves for each of her two younger sisters and I said yes. You know, I can't, <laughs> I can't not say no to a kid in need. Uh, our space also has two rooms dedicated for homework. We have um, each room has three computers and a wireless printer, uh, which the um, computers were all donated by the University of Scranton. And they came in and they set everything up, and we get it all networked. It's, um, so they can come in and do homework, which they have been doing their homework in there, which is great. We have several small conference rooms where we can have support groups or uh, one-on-one talking, um, and actually some of the rooms the kids just hang out in. Um, we have a, a room dedicated just to art, which they love art. <laughs> they love that, being able to express that. And we, they're in there almost every day doing something. Um, and we've had some really cool projects come out of there, so I'm really excited about that. Um, our, probably our, our piece de resistance is we have a game room that has a donated pool table that was probably built in the 1960s, so it has a real slate top that weighs well over 100 pounds. <laughs> and uh, we also have a mini basketball hoop, and then we have a table dedicated to board games, card games, and we had several people donate puzzles. Well, these kids love puzzles. They have probably done six or seven puzzles that are well over, you know, between 750 and 1,000 pieces each. 
and they sit there and they talk. Some of them don't have cell phones, um, or if they do have a phone, it's one of those government phones that doesn't have a lot of you know fancy stuff on it. So they talk. They talk to each other, which is <laughs> Imagine I think that. a huge exactly yeah exactly. And I think you know I compare that to kids, you know, other kids that you see around who are on their phones with all the time. Um, this these kids get it, and 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 they get to learn the communication skills that other kids aren't learning because they've been they're so trapped up in their phones. Um, we have one space that's a big kitchen dining room area. Um, so we're able to provide snack for them every day. It's a gathering room. Um, we also uh, had, a t- had a television donated recently, So and um, three different game systems, PlayStation, Xbox, and um, a Wii. And I thought that would be a big attraction to them, but it's really not. They hardly ever turn on the TV. That's beautiful to hear. Isn't it? I know. I know. It's just it, it's it's so sort of the opposite of what I was imagining um, in terms of activities. Um, we have had a lot of community people participate too. We have a woman who comes in and does yoga now every other week with the kids. We have a woman who is teaching the kids creative writing. We also have a career room where I invite people from a variety of uh, of um, backgrounds to come and talk to the kids about how they got from high school to where they are now. And um, our, all of these kids who come to us so far have said they want to go to college. And so I've also connected with a local organization that helps um, low-income kids uh, take the SATs. So we're going to start practicing our SATs next after they get back from uh, Christmas break. So, um, and, but nobody's talked to these kids about the SATs. Nobody has imagined that these kids might want to go to college. And um, I just find that astonishing because these kids, some of these kids are really, really bright. There's, it, I, I was really astonished to learn that several of them love math. Yes. And girls yes. and kids, and girls and guys. And I'm thinking, this is the next generation of scientists and doctors. We should be encouraging them. Right. Not, dis- not discounting them because they're low-income and kids of color. So, yeah. um, uh, so I'm just, I, I, this is way beyond what I imagined when I opened, when we opened our doors on October 30th. And I'm so happy that we're here for the kids. And the kids love being here. Um, we have a core group of about eight kids who come every single day. They're here by four o'clock and we have to kick them out at nine o'clock when we close. Um, and they, this is their home. <laughs> you know, this is where they hang out. This is where they, they talk. They work out their problems. They have fights with each other. I mean, verbal fights, not physical fights. But, um, um, but they grow and they, and they improve in a protected environment. And that's one thing they've all said to me is they feel so safe here. And I think that that's really huge. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm taken aback by what you just described. And, you know, my, my respect and compliments to you, it's, it's really amazing. Uh, and and I, I can tell you, are, you, you really love it. Uh, you are, I do. Yeah, I can. I, and again, it, it's, such a, it's such a great thing to hear coming from a fellow citizen in, in uh, my own neck of the woods that this is going on. And I want to I want to ask you a couple of other questions that popped in my head. You sure. hit, you you addressed a lot of them as I was thinking about <laughs> them already, but uh, you mentioned some of the crises that uh, these young folks are facing. What kind mm-hmm. of crises besides being you know what comes with being poor and 
and uh, some of the other societal tendencies that we all know exist. Uh, what, what, what specifically are you seeing? What type of crises? Well, um, I would say um, we've got kids who probably should be in um, some type of counseling um, for, you know, rather, rather, for ver- various reasons, um, who have some anger management issues, um, who aren't in counseling and aren't seeing anybody. Um, and I'm hoping to partner with um, the University of Scranton's graduate program and social workers next semester and have them come in and do some um, individual counseling supervised by uh, professors, of course, um, to help maybe start opening some of those those doors for them. That We have some kids who have a quick temper, and they need to learn how to manage that. Um, and then... And, so far, like I said, so far we've been pretty lucky um, with with the flared tempers where kids, they do know enough to separate themselves when they feel like they're out, getting out of control. Um, but it's, um, and then, you know, there's a, we have one group of kids who are siblings, and there's there's always sibling issues. I'm, I'm one of six kids, so I know that. <laughs> um, and we just we just try to help them. Uh, and I'm not a social worker. I am not um, licensed in, in that area at all. So I'm just relying on my parenting instincts and my teacher instincts when I'm I'm working with these kids. Um, I you, can't honestly go ahead. Are you getting much support uh, from the school district? Um, um, I wouldn't say that. Um, what I would say is that they're starting to learn about us. Um, I did reach out to them last year, but I think with all the crisis that the school district has been in, that, you know, we're kind of the lowest level of their interest, um, at at this point, but, um, fiscally uh, they have some major issues as we know. And you you were talking about the arts too, you know, we, we've all Mm -hmm. from anybody that's from uh, Northeastern Pennsylvania has heard about some of the, the ideas being floated about getting ready, getting rid of the arts programs and, yeah. And such, yeah. yeah, and that's terrible. That is the worst thing that you can do. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure, on Radio Free Brooklyn. More kids participate in the fine arts program than participate in sports. And to me, when you look at it that way, the, the, the area you need to cut is the more obvious. You, know, you need to cut sports. Um, that's because, blasphemy. Because <laughs> I know, I know, and I and I uh, I get grief for it all the time. But you know, these kids don't these kids don't go to football games and basketball games. They don't feel a part of that community. No, and if you're just looking but at it do, in, in yeah. terms of utilitarianism, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you're going to serve more people with the arts programs. Yes, yeah, exactly. The, yeah. that, that's my point. There are more kids in in plays and art and music um, than than there are who participate in sports, and so. Let's, and let's see, the expense of putting on a play versus the expense of a football game. Hmm. To me, I, there's, no, there's no question in my mind what, where I would cut, which is probably why I'm, I'm, I'm not on the school board. So, uh, yeah, it could be. Because <laughs> you're right, I would be, I would be blaspheming. <laughs> now, um, do you find that a, a lot, uh, you've mentioned, I mean, uh, the socioeconomic issues, uh, mm-hmm. and you also mentioned... Uh, some of uh, the sexual orientation, I guess, uh, issues mm-hmm. too that uh, put these young folks in in uh, 
in a in a way that is difficult for them to navigate. Is that is that yeah. a big part of what you're saying too? Uh, the LGBTQ issues uh, that that are attached to a lot of these young people who feel displaced. Well, it's 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 a good question, and the national statistics say that. Forty percent of teenage runaways identify as LGBTQ, and we were expecting to see that um, in the population that is coming here. But I can honestly tell you, not one child has said to me directly, "I am on the LGBT spectrum." I have heard the kids sort of infer or or hint that there is one young lady uh, that we have who is a lesbian. Um, uh, there is one young person who comes in who, from just the outside observer, appears to be uh, gender nonconforming, um, but has not identified themselves to me that way. Um, uh, so I think that we're still kind of earning trust in that regard. Um, um, I did have a couple of kids ask me what, why I started to do this, and I did emphasize the fact that I had this experience with LGBT kids, just so they would know that um, we're, we're not just um, here for fun. We're here to be effective and, and, and uh, a support system. We do have one room, um, one of our small conference rooms, where student helpers that I had this summer from CareerLink and ResCare used their handprints and painted a rainbow flag uh, on one wall. And um, so that, that's obviously right there uh, for them to see. But, it, you know, it's, it's obviously being a teenager is hard enough. When you're dealing with your sexual orientation or gender identity and low socioeconomic status, that just piles on the problem. And... I think that learning to who you can trust in all of those aspects is a difficult thing for kids. Um, I do know from from uh, talking to some of the kids that there's not a lot of LGBT. This is their they're saying to me that there are not a lot of LGBT support services um, at the school, um, and so I don't know if that is the case 100% or not. Um, I'm just taking their word for it. So I just want to be clear to the students who come here is that we're for all teens, but we also are very welcoming and affirming of LGBT teens. We just put up a flyer about there's a new uh, support group for uh, transgender teens starting in our area, and I put down the contact information for that. Um, we developed a library. I worked with um, folks at Books A Million this past summer to develop a library that includes a variety of authors of color. So when kids look at books, they see them, their, their faces reflected in those authors. We also have um, a pretty good selection of books on LGBT issues. Um, so again, just let them know this is a safe space. And um, so, I, so I think that's going to be an area where that will be a development as we go, um, as time goes on. Have, have you uh, encountered any support or pushback from, from parents of these young folk? Young folk? No, the only parent we've had one parent um, come uh, come actually come into the building, and that was uh, because he left his cell phone at home and could not text his daughter that he was outside waiting. And he was he was very funny. He said she his daughter did not want him to cross into her space. <laughs> 
and that's typical um, teen. That's a typical teen yeah, mentality. Isn't, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And he was, and he didn't want to. He really wanted to respect her boundaries. And um, and I said, oh no, come on up. I think it's really important for a parent to see where your kid's hanging out. Um, but he was very respectful. He only stayed at one door. He wouldn't. He wouldn't get go on a tour to see. But what he could see was that this was a clean space. That it was. Um, well lit. There were things for the kids to do. There were there was plenty of food, um, and you know, just uh, that's the vibe I I want to I want people to have is that this is a a safe and fun place to be, um, no matter what your age. And so I you know I think that that the dad was um, pretty appreciative of just having the glimpse of of what the space was like. Um, his daughter wasn't very happy, but, <laughs> but but she's been back, so I guess she she, she hasn't held a grudge or anything. So, well, um, but I, yeah, I, so we only had one parent actually step up. So I, I guess part of the reason I ask is be, because there are a couple reasons. It'd be nice to get some support uh, from parents who they mm-hmm. themselves are struggling, and and it's you know they see now their children have a positive place to hang out. Uh, but there's the other side of it too. There might be some parents that do not want their kids to be involved in an organization that might be so, quote-unquote, open, you know, especially mm-hmm. if it has to do with the sexual orientation issue and the parents don't mm-hmm. don't uh, support it or feel comfortable with it or confused by it or, you know, and, and things like that. Yeah, that's a possibility. You're right. Um, it hasn't happened yet, but at some point I'm sure it will uh, as we go forward. We do, we do um, have an LGBT support group, and we've had two sessions already. Um, and essentially what they were were conversations with the whole group of kids who were present and not just LGBT kids because we didn't want them to be segregated um, because then they might, that might out them to their friends, and we didn't want to do that. Um, so it was just an open conversation with every kid who was present, and it was very eye-opening. It was very eye-opening um, to me as an observer and I think to the kids about some of their friends are pretty homophobic. <laughs> Um, so it was, um, I think a good learning experience for all of us. Um, and I think that it, it's going to go a long ways toward, uh, developing understanding. Um, and then we have to, you know, you don't have to accept it. Uh, and certainly we're not trying to convert anybody by any stretch, but you need to be aware that this is an ally, an, could be an aspect of one of your friends or a sibling for that matter. So, um, what does that mean? And how do you feel about that? So um, we just had our second meeting Friday night. So um, I wasn't present for that, but um, but I understood it went really well. So there were eight kids there. So well, let me. Get, we're almost out of time, Maureen oh, Ma- Mayor okay. Gray, the <laughs> mm-hmm. founder of the Northeastern Pennsylvania Youth Center, being so nice to take some time out of your important work to talk with us on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. I, I want to give you an opportunity to share some contact information. Sure, sure. Um, we have a website, www.nepayouthshelter.org. We are physically located at 541 Wyoming Avenue on the top floor of the building. Uh, the building is secure, so um, visitors need to call the landline number, which is printed on our front door, uh, to, to be, have access into the building. Um, we also have a Facebook page, NAPAU Shelter. We also are on Twitter uh, and um, Instagram. So I think hopefully uh, you'll be able to find us um, if you're interested in our program. Um, 
And do you have any? Clo- and oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, gonna, any any closing if thoughts? Anybody or, is in, yes. If anybody, we um, we've had such generous community support in terms of donations of material goods. Um, so I want to just let folks know um, that we we do accept uh, clothing. We accept uh, f- food, snacks, particularly the kids. Of course, need after school snack, uh, which uh, if if people wouldn't mind including uh, uh, sweets with that, they're they are uh, teenagers after all, and it has to be packaged. Um, no homemade baked goods, um, and um, you know, in, in those larger quali- quantities that you would get at like Sam's Club or something would be would be extremely helpful. Um, we also do rely on financial contributions from donors. Um, so anything that you would be interested in in helping us with, we appreciate it. We are also having a raffle right now for a handmade 72-inch quilt. Um, that you can see a photo of on our website and our Facebook page, and the raffle tickets are five dollars a piece, um, and all of the that goes towards our, our our being able to pay our bills. We have to pay you know rent and utilities and cable and um, but um, so far uh, and insurance that's our biggest expense is insurance. Um, but so far we've had so many donations we haven't had to pay for uh, snacks. Uh, for the kids or any new clothes or anything. So uh, we're greatly appreciative of our community support. Well, you know, you're doing wonderful work again, and it's really a, a pleasure to, to hear about it. And um, Any a little insight for all the listeners that you might share, given what you've experienced in your work? Yes. These, these kids are not, invis- are not invisible, and they shouldn't be invisible, and yet Everyone I speak to tells me that had no idea that there were kids who are homeless or kids who are at risk of becoming homeless in our city. And um, don't discount a kid just because they're a kid of color um, or they come from the projects. Um, They have hopes and dreams just like the rest of us, and they should be encouraged just like every other kid. Wonderful. Thank you, Maureen Mayor Gray. It's really a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me, EW. I really appreciate your time. Have a good holiday. You too. Thank you. Merry Christmas.
by the way that you baby talk I can know by the way that you treat your man I can love you, babe, there's a crying Cause it's gone, daddy gone, love is gone Yes, it's gone, daddy gone, love is gone Gone, daddy gone, yes, it's gone, daddy gone Beautiful girl, lovely dress, 15 smiles, oh yes Christmas memory. My favorite Christmas story is Truman Capote's A Christmas Memory, the tale of young Buddy and his eccentric relatives and the fruitcakes they bake at Christmas time to send to famous personages, including FDR. Buddy is Truman before he became Dill in his one-time friend Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, and before he met Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's, and before he became infatuated with a killer in In Cold Blood, and before his decades-long writer's block, in his booze and drug-filled deterioration and demise. Frank Perry filmed the story for television, with Geraldine Page as Buddy's childlike cousin, Sook. It's not a holiday staple, like The Christmas Story, or Charlie Brown's Christmas, or It's a Wonderful Life, or all the Christmas carols, with all their Scrooges, including Alistair Sims and George C. Scott's, and Mr. Magoo's. But both story and adaptation eloquently express the sadness of the season. Around our house, no matter how much my mother tried to hide it, the holiday was always a melancholy time for her. She was a widow, and my age roughly marked her sentence of widowhood. So when I was eight, say, she was seven years a widow, she never remarried, never dated. So there were just her children and her sisters and brothers-in-laws and nieces and someone missing and rarely mentioned. We put up the plastic tree, dug out the old ornaments, and dusted off the chipped baby Jesus and plopped him in his crib. My mother baked nut bread and fruit cake using her mother's yellowing recipes and on Christmas Eve, she made a watery oyster soup, which I could never abide, and a plate of smelts, which I never cottoned to. And I marched off to serve as an altar boy at midnight mass, crowded with half-assed Catholics who stumbled in smelling of whiskey, destined for an early morning fight with the spouse, while the children fitfully slept upstairs. The idea of Christmas gifts piled under a tree caused my mother the most grief. Not that she was opposed to gift-giving, or doing her best on a limited income to give me everything I wanted. No, what bothered her was the seasonal showing off, calling or coming over on Christmas Day, and going on and on about how many gifts she received, or gave, and how wonderful they were, and how much the whole pile must have cost. 
Ara, my mother would say, hanging up the phone after talking to Aunt Teresa, expressing her disgust and effrontery in one Hibernian breath. Aunt Teresa herself would complain about the bounty for her daughters that her sister-in-law unloaded in a lifelong competition for affection and attention. So when my friend Chip came over and boasted of all his toys and newfangled gadgets, and, as the years went on, his electric typewriter, his tiny tape recorder, his shiny platform shoes, leisure suits, and wide ties, my mother quietly seethed. He always had more gifts than me, by far, and even if we had the same gifts, a typewriter, say, his were somehow better, more expensive, more as seen on TV. When he finally left, my mother would let loose and tell me that his family always thought their shit was ice cream. Not exactly in the spirit of the Yuletide, but pretty accurate. They were full of themselves, and the holidays ratcheted up the family bluster. And my mother was wary of Chip to begin with. Once, when there was a prowler allegedly stalking the neighborhood, Chip showed up on my porch with a large hunting knife hidden under his shirt. I suppose he planned to catch and fillet the prowler. For years, my mother brought up the knife incident as shorthand for Chip's instability. And he was quite unstable, obsessed with war, the military, the police, his status, and ultimately overcome by the delusions swirling inside his head. One brother served in Vietnam, and one was a sheriff, and Chip washed out of the military, and after a brief stint in a police department down south, he was ignominiously ushered out of that career as well. Long after we had lost touch, I would hear rumors of his sad life unspooling. Broken marriages, lost jobs, legal troubles, prescription drug dependence, scandal. He had a bad heart and an early death. I think my mother felt sorry for him when her annoyance eventually abated. Perhaps seeing the future Chip in the strange boy on her porch brandishing a knife in hopes of becoming a hero. One Christmas, my gift was a little gas station, complete with bays and pumps and tiny racks of oil cans. Quite slick. Chips was bigger and better and came with a fancy car. I love the gift, and there's a picture somewhere of our cat Rusty lounging inside the gas station. That must have been a happy moment, and I can see my mother laughing as my brother captured the scene with his Polaroid. Probably another gift. That Christmas night, alone, my mother sat in her chair with her pretzels and her quart of Schlitz and watched Bing Crosby and Andy Williams sing of the joy of the season as plastic snow fell on their red sweaters. Happy Christmas, Kyoko. Happy Christmas, Julia. So this is Christmas And what have you done Another year over And you won't just be gone so this is Christmas I hope you have fun The near and the dear ones 
Sentimental journey. We yearn for some other special time in the past or still yet to come, whilst we while away our chance each day to live lives that in some way matter. A long time many of us have inadvertently gone astray from the moment. Breathe in and out. What else under the sun shining really matters? I be about it, I've been about it, I love my hood, I scream and shout it, I throw it up, I rap it proudly, it's on my campus, in my laces, I'm everywhere, I beat my cases across the border. I'm on the to the races My bitch is born, she speak my language Hop a flight when my killers hanging We pistol ripping, we really banging I'm with the shit, I'm really claiming Represent that it's really ancient So quit the shit if you perpetrating T.Y. Click, we ain't never playing We pistol popping, you pistol playing I'm done with talking, killer, what you saying?
drop in that pot I cook it till it's a rock You slipping, you can get popped Lil' L turn himself in B-Woo, my killer still locked The dumb time's too hot My whole mouth, now I'm shopping The game I have you caught up I wanna leave it behind I pull it down on my socks Four ounces all in my sprites There you have it, episode 251 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, community activist Maureen Maher Gray. And to our associate producer and resident essayist, Uncle Cesare, a.k.a. Dr. Michael Pavis. And I'd like to thank these musical artists as well. Stefan Grappelli, Django Reinhardt, Joni Mitchell, Jim James, The Violent Femmes, John and Yoko, Grimes, Jay Worthy, Terrence Blanchard, and Branford Marsalis, too. Have a happy holiday, and here's to a great 2018. Thanks for listening.